Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire will begin featuring interviews with agents and editors in the month of June. To access this exclusive content and have the chance to pose your own questions to guest agents and editors, support the podcast through Patreon. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash Mindy McGinnis to learn more or check out the link in the episode credits. Today's guest is Bethany C. Morrow, author of Mem, releasing in May from Unnamed Press. Bethany graduated from the University of California, Santa Cruz, with a BA in sociology, but took notable detours in the film and theater departments. Following undergrad, she studied clinical psychological research at the University of Wales in Great Britain before returning to North America to focus on her literary work. Bethany joined me today to talk about her query process, as well as writing in a post-election world as a Black woman, and the concern that minority authors need to be looking for agents that want to represent them for a long-term career, not just as a response to a trend. Well-behaved women seldom make history, but they still end up as the monsters in folklore. Haldra Faline realizes this lesson when she and other folkloric women come out of hiding to fight their patriarchal oppressors in Freya's Daughter, a new urban fantasy novel by Rachel Padelic for fans of Patricia Briggs and Anne Bishop. Available now. Aspiring authors make up a lot of my listeners, and they're always interested to hear about a writer's journey to representation. So tell us a little bit about your querying journey and how you landed your agent. Victoria is actually my second agent. My journey to landing Victoria sounds really, really fast. But the first time I ever queried Victoria was actually in 2010. I have no idea if she even remembers this because it was in that experimental time where agents were signing up for these websites where you could actually go and create your query online and then send it to an agent who had signed up for that particular service. That thing doesn't even exist anymore. It was totally cumbersome. But that's the first time that I ever queried her. And I started querying for real in 2010. I say for real because prior to that, it was really difficult to know anything about agents. This was 2004. That's when you had to buy the writer's marketplace. Basically, from these bricks of text, trying to decide which agent would your work actually be good for. to know anything about these agents. Nobody had an online presence. You couldn't query online. Everything was snail mail. I don't even remember how many queries I would have sent. I did keep great records because I love Excel documents. I don't even count it as querying because it was so hit or miss and it was so kind of like not knowing if you're even doing this correctly. I would shudder to think what those query letters looked like. In 2010, when I came to writing Young Adult, I really started studying the industry at the same time that I was drafting this young adult novel. And so that's when I started. And thankfully, Write on Con, that was their inaugural online conference. And I was studying a lot. I was looking at, okay, who people actually were and what agencies actually did and who they had actually represented. And it was just suddenly all 
of this information just readily available. And it made a huge difference just in the quality of my query letter and actually targeting people specifically because I knew that there was some reason that they might be interested in this. And I highly recommend that. Please do not just splatter shot your queries out to people. It, it's really obvious when that happens. And it also just doesn't do you any favors. Um, you you mm-hmm. really, really want somebody who actually is going to be obsessively in love with your particular work. That took a very, very long time. There are some reasons for that. There's some marginalization issues about that, me being a Black woman and writing about Black girls, particularly before it was even marginally popular to do so. so. I signed with my first agent, I believe in 2015. So legit five years. There were a lot of different projects written in that time period, both young adult and adult market, speculative literary, literary science fiction across the gamut. And I signed with that agent after signing with an independent publisher who I then ended up parting ways with, ended up parting ways with that agent. Really not a great fit. In 2016, I had already signed the deal for my debut novel, Mem, and I had written a new young adult novel. I'd written a new one because it was the only thing I could do after the election and still remains the only thing I have written since the election, actually. I wrote another young adult. It was about magical, literal magical Black girls living in the Pacific Northwest, having to hide their supernatural identities. It happened pretty quickly, the writing of it. I queried it for the first time, I think, I want to say November of 2016, and I got a ton of revision requests. I connected to several of them. Actually, Victoria sent me this long, detailed email, but she didn't say she would be open to looking at her uh, revision. So I emailed her back because literally the the email I got right after hers kind of back to back was a revision request from someone else. And so I emailed Victoria back and I was like, just to clarify, I am going to be doing revision. I've gotten at this point, maybe like six to eight revision requests. I would be fine to send that to you as well. And she was like, oh, that sounds great. If you're going to revise it. Yeah, I would love to see it again. So that was cool. I guess if anybody sends you like a really long email of personalized feedback, just double check whether they would be willing to see a revision request. (laughs) I did not do the revision for a very long time, basically, because I had mem stuff going on and I just also didn't feel like it. I honestly, after the election, did not have the bandwidth for certain things. I've talked to so many writers that saw from that. So many writers that I know have gone into post-election hangover and just have been unable to work just like emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically. It's just been a real punch in the vagina. Yep. This hasn't really relented at this point. And I think for me, Mm -hmm. the reason that it hasn't is because as a black woman, this wasn't my first time realizing that white supremacy is trash and runs the United States. Mm But it definitely was the first time that I realized in a system that has set up intentionally so many barriers to my liberation, they had Mm -hmm. no fail safe for a white guy coming in and destroying the country. Just no fail safe whatsoever. Just like no way to, no way apparently to stop. Everybody's standing around acting like they're completely flabbergasted and flummoxed. They just can't figure out what to do. And I'm like, is this actually <laughs> happening? You're actually seeming super I confused. Know. That was like a new revelation of rage to just realize that this entire system 
is set up intentionally to keep me down and keep me oppressed. And yet, because of all that attention paid to keeping the marginalized marginalized, there was just no protection from Mm -hmm. not a criminal genius, not a criminal mastermind, just a doofus with no shame. That's it. Like, that's all. I'm white, obviously, but I'm not an idiot either. I knew that we have a racism problem in the United States. I didn't know how bad. I really didn't. After the election and everything just being batshit crazy, people who previously did not feel safe venting their racist or sexist thoughts, now they feel like they can and people say things. I'm like, dude, I had no idea that you harbored those thoughts. And now I'm like, well, I guess I'm glad I know now, even if this is what it took for me to see it. It's a lot. It's it's good times. So I, yeah, I did not revise (laughs) my young adult novel. And the reason that I even wrote it, as you can imagine, is because it has to do with living in this world that we're in. I wanted to write not just even a letter of encouragement, just a, a letter of edifying, of empowerment, of just holding up a mirror to young black girls and saying, this is why Mm -hmm. you are so powerful. This is why you are treated this way. This is why there is misogynoir because you are powerful. Eventually realizing how many writers would be pissed off at me to find out how many agents were waiting for my novel to come back that (laughs) I was not working on. I was like, no, no, let me, let me deal with this. Even when I agree with the suggested revisions, I always wait until I see a way in literally a specific spot that something significant is going to change. Until I Mm -hmm. see that, I don't want to just go in and tinker with something. Number one, because I get a special kind of anxiety, I guess, when I feel like I'm just making a mess. I'm very addicted to what is written on the page and the way it's written on the page until I think of a better way to do it. I eventually came back and actually did that maybe four to six weeks, I want to say. And so I sent it back out in June of 2016. And I think I got my first offer in July and then subsequently received uh, some more offers. And I signed with Victoria in August of 2017. So we are still kind of new together, but we have sold a book together. And so that's, that's been really awesome. I would say, especially if you're a marginalized author, don't believe anybody who tells you that all that matters is the work. You do have to go in with your Mm -hmm. eyes open, understanding what specific challenges exist, because if not, you are not going to realize how important it is, A, to find your tribe and B, to find your people and to find opportunities where people are trying to make space for you. I'm done Mm -hmm. knocking on doors that are not going to open for me. I'm looking for the people who actually are about that life, like who are actually doing the work and not just talking about hopefully wanting to do the work, but what agents are Mm -hmm. actually representing multiple people of color, multiple marginalized people, what agents are actually selling those people's work. That is extremely important. I have been down the road of being with somebody who talked a good game, but just to me. And I think that's a good point, especially in today's culture where on Twitter and social media, and particularly in the YA world, where we are seeing it to be somewhat fashionable to be promoting diversity, it's easy to say of something, course. but are you actually taking action to promote Absolutely. it? And another yeah. agent, actually, 
tweeted something about making sure that the agent is actually concerned with your longevity, basically, as a marginalized author and not simply taking advantage of this moment that we find ourselves in. And that was such an important PSA. I do fear for that. I do fear for marginalized authors being snapped up right now and kind of sent Mm -hmm. out into the world without the benefit of an editorial eye or feedback that other authors do receive. And that's sort of just feeding into the whole, oh, see, it's just you didn't have the quality. Well, none of us on our own are of the quality that we should be sent out on submission. No, nobody is. Nobody is. Nobody is. So finding the person who is an ally and as such is going to afford you the best possible editing uh, feedback and, and really make sure that you are ready, but also hears you, of course, hears your voice, hears the story that you're trying to tell and doesn't try to sort of impose any sort of white gaze or quote unquote, can't connect with it because of your marginalized story or protagonist. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. You would, as a marginalized author, if you were to be snapped up by an agent who, or an editor who is just looking to make their footprint in this movement of the moment exactly. right. and not actually have your best interests in mind. Yeah. I mean, that's, right. that's a true concern. I can totally see that. It's, as I said, it had not occurred to me before. I'm obviously white. So <laughs> I I think that you will be able to understand from this perspective, how many people have you heard of the last generation say something like, well, I marched with so-and-so, right? I don't want to be your, I marched with so-and-so moment. I don't want to be your, I marched with so-and-so client. I have heard that statement. And if you want to follow up with, and then what did you do? Exactly. If you're not willing to take the time to actually learn and listen and hear what the people that you're supposedly marching with and for are saying, you might as well stay home, honestly. I'm just going to be real. Unfortunately, but it exists. So there is a divide in feminism between white women and those of marginalized identities. It's there and it's not something that you can ignore if you want to be serious about the movement as a whole. To ignore it, it basically just tells us who we're safe with in the first place. So pep talks to, especially to marginalized aspiring authors, pep talks only work if they're not a lie. So I'm not trying to give people just keep going and just, yes, keep going. Absolutely. Yes. Keep going, but not just keep going. First of all, if nobody tells you it's not you, you're not being ridiculous. Yes. That trend that you're seeing exists. Yes. That barrier to you moving forward exists. If you're not willing to tell people that and to acknowledge that it's almost like gaslighting. It's like, what do you expect? But for people to give up and and go away because they're experiencing something that people are refusing to acknowledge. Meanwhile, we as an industry are saying how accepting we are and how progressive we are. I'm very, very interested in keeping the door open and opening the door for, especially for black women who are aspiring authors. Follow me on Twitter. I will absolutely follow you back. Every observably black woman who is an aspiring writer who follows me on Twitter gets an automatic follow back absolutely want to know what your journey is and what you're doing and and how it's going for you. Because of that, I want to be very blunt, just very candid and very truthful. It's not helpful to be otherwise. No, it's not. 
I agree. Honesty is always the best policy, and sometimes it yeah. hurts. I mean, that's just the way it is. I came into the publishing industry still somewhat naive. I grew up in an extremely rural, very, very white community. And when I went to college, I learned a lot, changed a lot of just the way I see the world. And it's amazing to me still how white my experience of the world has been. And sometimes I can't get my head around it because it just, it's, it's astonishing how blatantly racist some of the things that go on are. And I'm like, how is this allowed to stand? Yep. That was the thing on YA Twitter that I was really, really happy about. Of course, people like Justina Ireland and and other people were talking about, because I live in a very rural, for a girl from California who's only lived in cities, I actually was physically terrified because I had never been in the country dark. Like there's a difference between Mm -hmm. the dark and the country dark. I got a friend from Chicago who stayed with me. Demetria Lunetta, she's a YA author. She's from Chicago and she stayed with me for like a week. Dude, she was terrified to go outside. It's terrifying. Do not make fun of us. It is literally the dark. It's literally just the world as it would exist if people weren't there. So (laughs) completely outside of my experience. But the thing that you find in these places is that it is basically 99.9%, according to the census, literally 99% white. And that is an excuse that a lot of people use for why their YA is not representative of the actual world. And the problem with that is not dealing with the history of why these places are so white. When you live in a multiracial country, if you can find a place that is completely only the power dominant party, a group of people living there, that is intentional. That is inherently racist in itself, in and of itself. It is inherently racist. I can tell you being one of the four black people who live where I live, Mm -hmm. people don't live here because they don't feel safe to live here. It should never be used as an excuse for why your representation of a lack of inclusion is realistic because it in itself is proof of racism. Like you, Mm -hmm. you carved out a place and made it so unwelcoming. And if I promise you, if you go back and look at the history of your town, you're going to see racial violence. You're going to see exodusing, especially if you're in the Mm -hmm. North and you live in an all white place, you're going to find history of an exodus that took place. So please stop looking silly online, friends. Stop using that as as an excuse for why it's totally realistic, unless you're going to deal with the horrifying reason why such places exist. You know, it's a really interesting point. I came across data Supporting this, when I was working on the history of my house, I do live in the north. I live in Ohio, and I have a really old-ass house. My house was built sometime between 1855 and 1860. So I was actually looking at old maps from the 1840s and 50s. We'll actually have the census data inked in the corner occasionally. And I was looking at my tiny little town in the tiny little township of this tiny little county in the very middle of nowhere. Like We were still considered the frontier at this point. On the census data, there were more black people living here in 1850 than there are now. I mean, I was really thrown by that. I was taken aback. And my immediate thought was, okay, what What made them leave? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You learn something new every day. Or at least I do. Unfortunately, you already knew it. That's the the biggest divide I think that we're seeing right now in among peer groups is we aren't learning this right now. 
we are now having to deal with the fact that people could get this far into their life and not having had to know it. That is very difficult to witness, especially because we are taught from birth, give them a chance to learn. And it's said as though we are some sort of other type of being. We had to know, it was assumed that we could know at like five years old, four years old. And then with adult white people, you're told, well, they didn't know. Okay, but you realize that that's the problem, right? Of course, you do have to have grace, otherwise you can't have friends. But that in itself is another aspect of what makes this period so difficult uh, because it is, it's people that we love and people that we're friends with and that we're going to continue loving and being friends with who you're still having to deal with. I didn't have to know that. So I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, And then you just have to be like, Oh, okay. I can't even imagine. And I'm sure that it's very painful. We're going to talk about it, I'm sure, with the sensitivity reading and stuff. It's it's one of the reasons why it's like, why can't I just write whoever I want? Girl, you just found out racism exists. No, you can't write a Black person. Coming up, Bethany on how her experience as a minority informed the writing of Mem, even though it was unintentional, whether or not white writers should attempt to write main characters of color, and the difference between that and being inclusive in your writing. From debut author Kelly DeVos comes an unforgettable novel told in dual fat and skinny perspectives about smart fashion, pursuing your dreams, and loving yourself. School Library Journal says, This is a realistic portrayal of the frustrations of weight loss and size acceptance, complete with authentic depictions of sex, body positivity, and ambition. A strong choice for most YA shelves. Don't miss Fat Girl on a Plane by Kelly DeVos, hitting store shelves on June 5th. Your debut novel, Mem, releasing in May from Unnamed Press, is described as a small book carrying big ideas. It's speculative literary fiction, which can be a hard thing to sell, and a quick and fast plug. So tell us about the novel and some of its larger themes, because I think this is something that an elevator pitch can't quite encompass. I actually got a lot of experience doing this at Winter Institute, so that was fun. Mem is the story of an alternate 1920s Montreal in which scientists have devised a way to extract unwanted memories. The process of that extraction results in something called a mem, which is almost like, and I I never use this term in the book, but it's almost like a clone. It only houses that singular memory, and it only exists as long as that memory exists. And then once the memory Mm expires, the mem expires. And so mem is about the singular mem thus far who does not follow that definition whatsoever. She is autonomous. She has her own memories. She has her own mind. The story follows her being recalled to this place that mems are housed usually, which is the vault. She's lived in the real world all of this time because of the fact that she is so different. And now she's being called back to the vault and she doesn't know why. There's so much going on there. I love it. So talk some more about some of those themes because I know there's some large themes at work there. Elsie is a black girl and it's in Montreal. I do have an author's note that lets people know, hey, racism doesn't exist in this book because I said so, Mm. not because it doesn't exist in Canada. But when I wrote Mem, I was simply following Elsie in terms of what would be real to Elsie, what would happen to Elsie. And I was really only dealing with her as a mem. 
as far as Elsie's concerned, Elsie's primary designation, her primary identity is that she's a mem. Now, obviously I am a black woman and I'm the one who wrote her. So after writing it and reading it and having other people read it, you do realize like, oh, okay, well, here's why own voice narratives matter because there's a lot more actually being talked about unconsciously because it's part of my actual existence. I don't really have to intentionally talk about it to talk about it. And so what I found after writing Mem is, of course, a a lot of it has to deal with who decides, who gets to decide what your identity is. And being an autonomous person and sitting there listening to people debate your identity, realness, or your validity, being a person of conviction in that situation. Because one of the things about Elsie is she's a very special character to me because people will say, oh, she's struggling to know what she is. And it might look like that at first glance, but in my mind, she's really not. She's very much certain of who she is from the first moment that you meet her. What she's struggling with is to honor the world and what the world keeps saying about her. When you have a power dynamic that's so out of balance, you have this assumption of validity. You have this assumption of authority. And I think that a lot of marginalized people will understand this. It doesn't mean that you value what that person is saying, but you understand that what that person is saying is valued. And so a lot Mm -hmm. of times, while it looks like you're struggling to decide what you believe, that's not so much what it is. You're literally struggling to exist alongside this completely ridiculous thing that's being imposed upon you. For me, when when anybody has ever said, oh, she's struggling to find out who she is, I I think if you pay attention, she's not struggling with that. She knows what she is. She knows who she Mm -hmm. is. She's struggling to exist Mm -hmm. in a world that's telling her that she doesn't. I'm very, very much about the speculative concept. I don't try to intentionally adjust the story so that it is also an allegory. I was literally like, what would happen if you were this person? And if this was the way the world felt about it? And what are some things that would actually happen to you? So again, because of my own voice, my identity being the same as hers in that way, I think you do end up getting a lot of themes anyway that do relate to the experience of a Black American or a Black woman in particular. There's some historical basis in Canada specifically they sort of determined the time frame for me of when the story was going to take place because I wanted it to coincide with the people's case, which was when the famous five, which were five Canadian women activists, they were fighting a North American act that was basically saying that women were not persons in terms of rights or privileges or ownership. That wasn't overturned until 1929 because of these five activists. My story takes place before 1929 because in my mind, it is also kind of referring to that literal thing that that existed at the time. Even if she wasn't a mim, honestly, she would not have been a person. It is absolutely still historical speculative literary fiction. I don't know how many of these little genre labels I get to use, but um, (laughs) it, it definitely does have that basis. And you have other female characters in the book. I think you'll see that theme running through it for them as well, despite the fact that they aren't mems. That's awesome. So you have a degree in sociology. You studied clinical psychology in Great Britain. So clearly, just from the themes that you're giving us here about Mem, you're bringing this wealth of knowledge into the world of your fiction. So when you were working on your studies, were those some of the 
moments that struck the flint that brought them into existence? Were your academic studies kind of working hand in hand with your creative mind in that moment? I would actually say absolutely not. Um, no, okay, cool, <laughs> cool, cool. For sociology, I knew absolutely that I was not going to study creative writing. I was taking classes in theater, I was taking classes in film, taking classes in sociology. Um, I originally wanted to sort of do an independent study where I kind of did all three together couldn't get an advisor to help me do that. So I just ended up making a film in college and taking a bunch of theater and also doing sociology. So I still did exactly what I wanted to do. It's just my degree only says sociology. I was doing that because that made sense to me. Sociology, the study of, of social groups made sense to me. It was like the first thing that I was studying where it was the way that I looked at things to begin with. I always contextualized. I didn't ever try to kind of take somebody out and, and put them in a vacuum. And I, I'm sure that was the reason why I gravitated towards sociology first, because it just seems completely unreal. Well, because it is completely unrealistic to, to start at the individual. And then doing clinical psychological research, and that was a very brief thing. I was supposed to go into forensic psychology and that was when I realized like, hey, um, publishing isn't just going to happen on its own, which I guess is sort of what I imagined during university mm. was that I'll just do all these other things that I'm super duper in love with until publishing happens. And then you're like, oh, you have to do that. Like you have to pursue that. That's right. I was in Great Britain doing clinical psychological research. I ended up leaving there. It wasn't hard to do, but it's hard to think about. I had been accepted into the forensic psychology program at York, and I knew that publishing was more important to me than forensic psychology. But to think about it sometimes is like, oh my gosh, did I seriously do that? I think if anybody's read my work and is familiar with any case studies, you would be studying in forensic psychology or clinical research. It is absolutely not related to my stuff. I never read about somebody's real horror and was like, I'm going to write about this. The real stuff is enough. But having said that, I don't realize when things are troubling to people. So mm. I didn't know until after that Mem was accepted for publication that anybody would find any part of it troubling whatsoever. Mm. I have a horrible thermostat, apparently, for what is upsetting. I'm similarly calloused, so I get it. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about it. I do appreciate that it affects people like that. I'm like, well, man, if I really tried to upset you, gosh. Right. Imagine what I could accomplish. <laughs> Man, it's like if I wrote about the things that upset me, it'd probably like literally blow your mind. I know. And I, I yeah. guess I kind of already know that because when people say, oh, like, what do you enjoy watching? And I'm like, oh, gosh, let me send you a list. I've been married for 16 years and I've been watching these things by myself for 16 years. So I don't mm -hmm. know why that wasn't a clue that like, <laughs> hey, people don't like this sort of thing. And I'm like, oh, okay. What I like, other people, they don't like. <laughs> So yeah. I guess that's a no. <laughs> no. All right. Well, hey, that's a great answer, though. That's a great answer. <laughs> so you spent a year working as an intern at Entangled Publishing, and you offer editorial services for authors, as well as your services as a sensitivity reader. Your areas of expertise include Black American history and or identity, and any of these intersections or those topics on their own. Womanness, motherhood, family dynamics, including sisterhood and sibling dynamics in larger families, higher education, specifically PWIs. Can I ask what is a PWI? It's a public white institution. 
as opposed to an HBCU. Okay, got it. Expatriation, international travel, interracial relationships, accelerated educational programs, specifically GATE and international baccalaureate. You also can offer insight on invisible disabilities and performance cultures, such as marching band drill team and dance. So sensitivity readers have become something of a hot button topic lately. I don't care to get into a conversation about whether or not they are necessary because they are. I grew up in a very rural, very white area, as we talked about before. I didn't meet a person of color until I was in college. That being said, as a writer, I'm capable of writing a character who isn't white. But having spent half my life with my only exposure to non-white culture being siphoned through the media, I don't know what it's like to be anything other than white. And it's guaranteed that many of my thoughts Mm -hmm. and assumptions about any culture outside of my own have more than likely been shaped by misleading representations in media. So I come at it from that angle in that a sensitivity reader coming from me, I need one. It is, in fact, necessary. Right. So tell us more about your feelings on sensitivity reads and being a sensitivity reader. They're absolutely necessary. And one of the reasons that they're necessary, though, is because of the lack of inclusion in publishing. Mm-hmm. So it's been said before, and I make no bones about it, it's a field that should not expand. It should be slowly disappearing, basically. And the reason it should be slowly disappearing is that we should be seeing more inclusion in the hiring practices in publishing on the other side of the desk. I I was very, very fortunate that my acquiring editor for my young adult novel is a woman of color. Of course, you make a list of where you're going to go out to. There's only so many. The thing that happens with that is women of color gets put into this big category. Now, I am a black woman. Mm -hmm. If we were talking actual inclusion and representation, it would be, okay, I should have this plethora of black women editors to choose from. And not just at the lowest levels either, because everybody knows that there is a publisher and there is an executive publisher. And there's all of these people in these much higher positions. And all of those positions are basically populated with white women. So the reason that sensitivity readers are necessary right now is because of a failing in publishing. You aren't going to get the perspective. That's why you end up with these books that come out that, that, you know, when you think of how many eyes have to see something before they go to press and you think of the things that have gone to press, it's horrifying. Nobody at any point in that whole situation was like, hey, wait a minute. This is like horribly offensive. This this is absolutely unacceptable. Like this shouldn't ever see the light of day. That's not happening because it goes from usually a white author to a white agent, to a white editor, to a white sales team, to a white reviewer, Mm -hmm. and everybody thinks Mm -hmm. it's great. So a sensitivity reader, the reason that it's been a hot button topic is because it's a very easy person to throw under the bus. We are not at the publishing house. We are not the agent. We are not the writer. You are the dissenting opinion. There's a huge power imbalance just in general. And now there's even a bigger one because you are a freelance sensitivity reader. It's very easy to just be like, it's your fault. You're Mm -hmm. the problem. The way that we actually make effective change and actually sustainable change is that we literally get rid of the power imbalance, make marginalized people a part of the publishing apparatus. That's something that absolutely has to happen where you have marginalized people being represented in the publishing houses, on the marketing teams, as the reviewers who are actually being solicited. If you have unpaid 
internships in the city of New York. Who do you think can afford to do those internships in order to get that experience, in order to work in that publishing house? How long do you take before you pay editors and assistant editors or editorial assistants living wage? How long does that take? So who can afford to work there for five years before they actually start making a wage that they can support themselves off of. Publishing is dependent on generational wealth, knowing who has the generational wealth. So this is a huge issue. As cowardly as we love to be in America, we just decided to attack the sensitivity reader instead of dealing with the actual problem. Sadly, I have seen a lot of people that I know who were offering sensitivity reads, which are at this point still very, very necessary. I have seen a lot of people have to put self-care above trying to help publishing fix this huge mistake because it's too much. The stamina that it requires to say, hey, I'm going to intentionally read something that I can pretty much guarantee is going to offend my particular identity on some level. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to do that for the purpose of then reporting it back to you in the hopes, but with no guarantee that you're going to make any sort of effective or observable Mm -hmm. improvement. And you're going to pay me this very small fee for that, Mm -hmm. by the way. I've seen a lot of people backing away from being sensitivity readers just because of the emotional weight that comes with it. And yeah, people get attacked and people get outed. My understanding is that you're not supposed to necessarily say who your sensitivity readers were because that puts a target on them. You are not. People wonder like, oh, well, if it's something that's so necessary, why is that? Because I'm not giving anybody a stamp Mm -hmm. of approval. I'm giving them feedback. And that would require that they go back and make the appropriate changes. But the problem is, are they capable of making those changes? Are they capable of making something less offensive without simply erasing whatever marginalized identity they had tried to put it in the first place? I am not going back and reading what they do after that for the most part, unless they hire me again. And some people don't even do that. Some people aren't willing to look at the same thing again, which I completely understand. I have on multiple occasions read it again. It's a separate service. And even then, I can't think of a time where I didn't have additional commentary, additional Mm -hmm. notes, because it's the same person making those adjustments. Mm -hmm. Writing a book should not be the first time you come up against your own biases If it is, and I point it out to you, what gives you the impression that you're going to be able to properly represent Mm -hmm. that other party? Because everybody says, oh, I'm capable of writing somebody who's not white. Are you, though? And what's giving you that impression? I think you have to be a very, Um, very good listener before you can be a very good writer. And I think that's true across the board. Here's the reason why it's a Mm non-conversation the other way around. I have spent my entire existence being Mm force-fed whiteness. I'm very familiar with it. My survival depends on it. So to question whether marginalized people can write the power majority is silly. It's absolutely silly. Of course we can. It's all we see. It's overrepresented. The reason that you can't do it the other way is how many novels did you read growing up that were written by a marginalized person about a marginalized group. How many television shows did you watch that are written by starring directed by people of color, marginalized Mm -hmm. people until you start actually ingesting our creative Mm -hmm. output? Why are you so keen to try to do it yourself? Like if it's actually about inclusion and representation, what did you do to prepare yourself to even do that undertaking? Because these are real people. Mm -hmm. 
These are real people who actually exist in the world. And therefore, how we are represented has been proven. And again, as a sociologist, let's, let's not pretend that we don't understand this. It matters how I am represented on screen. It matters how often I am represented on screen. You said how many books when you were growing up were written by Black authors that featured a Black protagonist. And I was sitting here thinking about it. And the only example I can come up with was Virginia Hamilton. So what do you do if it's one? I don't know. Do you go out and write that book now? No, I read yours. You know, people act like that's not an option. As someone who is distinctly aware of their lack of exposure growing up, which is seminal time, I'm getting better at being conscious of putting diverse casts into my books because I know it's necessary. I also don't think I'm in any position to write a main character. That is something that's markedly different. I do think, of course, that people's work should be inclusive. Notice I'm not saying diverse. I do believe that people's work should be inclusive because that's mm -hmm. reality. I absolutely think it would make no sense for there not to be marginalized people in your fiction, but you make a very good distinction here. Whose mm -hmm. story is it? What perspective are you trying to represent? The onus isn't entirely on authors. Acquire by us, for us narratives. There has to be that balance. It's not just what should authors be doing differently. It's primarily, to be fair, it's what mm -hmm. should publishing yeah, be doing. Yeah, and that's a really important distinction. As a white author and being aware of the need for me, particularly, because that's what I can control, to be inclusive in my writing. But I'm also very aware that I am highly unqualified, uniquely unqualified to write the protagonist as anything right. other than a white person. So I appreciate you making right. that distinction because it's two different things. It is. And I want to say in both instances, nothing but a refusal to give up white supremacy should keep all authors from being inclusive mm -hmm. in what they consume. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean following the trend. I don't mean just watching Get Out. I don't mean just watching Black Panther. I don't mean just watching Blackish. I know how hard Black creatives are working. We see mm -hmm. what our country really is. If you didn't see it before, you certainly better see it now. And yet, at the same time, you've got Atlanta, you've got The Shy, you've got Blackish, you've got Grownish. You've got so many different things to choose from right now that are giving you very different narratives, very different experiences. You have all these different types of representation. I think that television is doing a lot better than film, to be very honest. If you listen long enough, you will start mm -hmm. to understand more. I do think that exposing yourself over and over again, number one is just acknowledging the humanity of other people who have not been represented in mainstream media for, for that reason alone. Read Black authors in romance, read Black authors in science fiction, especially in science fiction, because let's be real, most of your science fiction has been, what if this happened to white people? And right. what you're describing is something that just happens to us all the time. If you really care about science fiction, mm -hmm. read Black science fiction. Read all of the things that you like to read by yeah. somebody else and do it more than once. And don't only do it with the book that's at the top of the list. If you read my work and like my work, here's some other people that you should read. And here's some other people who are doing something completely different than what I'm doing. And if you didn't like my work, here's somebody who's doing something completely yeah. different yeah. from what I'm doing. Lastly, what's up next for Bethany and where to find her online? 
I want to know what is up next for you. What are you working on? So my YA debut will be with Tor. The working title right now, which you can find on Goodreads, is The Sound and the Stone. And yes, it is a story about literal magical Black girls. There are so many reasons this book matters to me and is extremely important to me. And I cannot wait. It's, it's winter 2020. I'm hoping to talk a lot about it with people. It's such an important thing to me. A lot of what I'm seeing that I'm extremely excited about is African mythology coming into fantasy and equally as important to me as a Black American who was raised on the West Coast, who doesn't, you know, because slavery happened, doesn't know a lot about my African origins. And of course, being American, we have a Mm -hmm. lot of other heritage that goes into that as well. And so what I also want to see are Black American kids in fantasy and Black American kids in science fiction. And so I'm extremely, extremely excited about both. Both have to happen, and I'm not allowing the conversation to become an either-or situation. But as a, especially being from the West Coast, there is an insidious form of racism that happens on the West Coast, particularly in the Pacific Northwest in California. And if you don't experience it, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people very much diminish it because this is a part of the country that is seen as quote unquote progressive. It's about these two girls, Effie and Tavia and their play sisters, which is actually really important to me that I want to put in there because coming from my cultural background, that is a very real Mm -hmm. and very, very common thing of play family. And and you just call them family. You're not biologically related. And that really does not matter. This book is very unapologetically black. One of the girls is her identity is known at the beginning of the book and she's a siren, but she's a siren in a world where only black women Mm. are sirens and therefore sirens are hated and feared. It's not beautiful. It's not ethereal. It's hated. And so in the black community, Mm. you help hide the sirens and the other sister is changing something's happening and she doesn't understand what that something is. It's a story about them basically trying to first contain, of course, their otherness, their magical identities. But it's also just a story about Mm -hmm. the strength of Black sisterhood and just how integral and necessary and life-saving and life-avenging that is. I mean, that is what has Mm -hmm. kept me socially alive in the last couple of years Mm -hmm. is other Black women. So the book is very much about them. It revolves around them. It revolves around their love for each other. It revolves around confronting the misogyny in the world, being unable to avoid it even when you want to. The confrontation is coming from the outside. And that's a really important thing because you see us fighting back. And so the attention is on us fighting back instead of what we're fighting and the fact that we're having to fight. I'm very, I'm in love with this book. I'm very excited about it. My editor and my agent, their love for it means the world to me. And so I'm just very, very excited to share it. Not until winter 2020, unfortunately. You can find me, of course, on Twitter. If you did not get that from everything else I've said, I am very much on Twitter. I talk to people on Twitter. I love it. So absolutely connect with me there. I definitely want to hear from people, want to know what you're working on, want to know what you're reading, want to know what you're watching. And then I have my website, which is bethanycmorrow.com. Mm-hmm. 
Rider Rider Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Rider Rider Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>